You could be seated. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, we have some black Bibles around these half walls in this room. Feel free to get up now and even grab one. We're in Acts chapter 21. Today we return to our study of the book of Acts. Through much of last year we were there. And before Christmas time, we had worked through 20 chapters of this great book of the Bible. It's been several weeks since we've been in it, and so let me just give you a word of reminder or a a word of introduction to the book of Acts if you're new to our study. Acts is Luke's volume two of what Jesus accomplished. Volume one we call Gospel According to Luke. It leads up to the death and the resurrection and ascension of Christ. In volume 2, the book of Acts picks up after that with Christ's powerful work on earth from heaven. By the power of his spirit, through his disciples, and particularly Peter and Paul. Peter in the first half of the book of Acts and Paul in the second half. Now, the reason Luke wrote these two volumes of inspired history was to instill confidence in the followers of Jesus about what they've been taught about Jesus and about the early church. We get this from Luke chapter 1, where he tells us that he's giving an orderly eyewitness account of what happened, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. Certainty, that's his goal. Confidence, assurance. Now in certain passages in the book of Acts, a story or a scene so obviously fits within that aim and that agenda. It it breeds confidence in God's plan. It shows us that he wins. How many times have we seen in the book of Acts thus far the unstoppable success of the gospel despite great opposition and seeming threat. And yet some passages in the book of Acts are not so obviously confidence boosters, but are head scratchers, at least at first. There's a floating question mark, a cartoon imaginary question mark above our heads sometimes when we read certain portions of the book of Acts as we wonder why Luke would include this story with these details and we might wonder how it serves his purpose to breed confidence in the church. Well, I think Acts 21 is of that latter category. It has some head scratchers. Now, we left off back in December at the end of chapter 20 with Paul's tearful goodbye to the Ephesian elders. After three years of ministry among them, he's moving on. He's already stated where he's going. The end goal is Rome, and in the meantime, he's going to go to Jerusalem. Now, we'll talk about later why Paul is so determined to go to Jerusalem. But just note it for now. That's where we're picking up. Paul leaving the Ephesian elders in chapter 20 with plans to go to Jerusalem. Now let's read the first 36 verses of chapter 21. It's a bit. It'll take us about five minutes to read it. But don't forget that Paul told Timothy, a pastor, 
give attention to the public reading of Scripture. This is part of what God wants us to do when we get together. Read the Bible. So here we go. Acts 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are zealous for the law. And they've been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what we have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality." Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, 
giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune, of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. We'll stop there. A curious bit of scripture, isn't it? I wonder if we could see those cartoon question marks popping above our heads, how many there would be represented in this room as we read through that. But it's actually not too difficult or mysterious of a passage if we understand that here Paul is being portrayed as a special example of following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ in suffering for the church. A sentence that's in verse 13 captures well the main idea where Paul says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And the response from the people in verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. And as we read, it was. That's the main idea of the passage Paul, following Christ into trouble, God-led trouble, God-ordained trouble, gospel-purposeful trouble. That's the main idea. But four big ideas will help us understand and apply this passage in some smaller details. So notice first the care and concern of the saints. Did you notice that heavy emphasis of care and concern of the saints weaved between all of Paul's travels in verses 1 to 16? Paul and his companions are traveling by ship. They come ashore in various places, and each time they get out and they seek the Christians. And those Christians welcome them. They show hospitality to them. No doubt they would have shared stories of blessings and, and anguish together. They would have prayed together and, and sang together, perhaps shared the Lord's Supper together. Paul would have taught them, no doubt. He would have inquired about their souls and their struggles. 
In short, they cared for one another. They, they opened homes and opened hearts, if we can put it in a, a quaint kind of way. Paul and his, his company would sometimes stay in a house for just one night, sometimes seven days, sometimes just a, a long while, as it says. The goodbyes would always be bitter and sweet. There were hugs and tears. Sometimes the goodbye was prolonged by Paul's hosts traveling with him as far as they could before they had to turn back. We've seen different kinds of encounters and hospitality shown throughout the book of Acts, but it's just jam-packed here. Verses 4 and 5, that's entire. And then verses 7 to 10, that's in Caesarea. And really, we'll see it in the next section, verses 17 to 20, when Paul arrives in Jerusalem. Paul is drawn to the community of the saints, the communion of the saints, like a bug is drawn to the light. Here's where we should pause and also consider why Paul was traveling in the first place. Why is he going to Jerusalem? We're not told exactly in the book of Acts why Paul was so committed to go to Jerusalem and why he was in rather a hurry. We find in Acts 19.21, Paul was resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem, then on to Rome. Chapter 20, verse 16, he left and he decided to hasten to Jerusalem, if possible, to get there before Pentecost. Chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says in his own words, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that I'm traveling to and fro, that imprisonment and afflictions await me in Jerusalem. Especially with the thought of persecution on the horizon in Jerusalem, you wonder why Paul would be so doggedly persistent in getting to Jerusalem. And we find out, not from the book of Acts, but from the epistles, the letters that he writes. In 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, in 1 Corinthians 6, and in Romans 14, four chapters, no small bit of the Bible, is devoted to Paul talking about a collection he was taking up among the Gentile Christians for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. This occupied his travels and his time for at least a couple of years. There was a famine in Jerusalem years back. It was still having its painful effects. The Jerusalem Christians were, were hungry. They were impoverished. They were facing persecution. And Paul thought it would be a beautiful, unifying picture of the church of Jesus Christ if Gentile Christians up north and to the west would care for financially Jewish Christians suffering in Jerusalem. He's determined to get that great gift from the Gentile churches to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. All this is a matter of care and concern for the church, whether we're talking about short visits in people's homes along the way or the financial gifts that keep accumulating as Paul travels to and fro or just Paul's determined travel even in the face 
of great danger in Jerusalem. It's the care and concern for the church. So let's ask ourselves some questions related to this. Are we diligently pursuing familial warmth, open doors and open hearts in this church? I know Paul was traveling church to church to church to church, but in each of those places, there were open doors and open hearts, open lives. Are we pursuing that? I think we are as a church. Are we pursuing it well? Could we pursue it better? Are we obeying the Bible's commands to show hospitality, to not protect our homes as merely our own, but to open them and share them and share food with others? Are we giving money to the needs of the saints and to the work of the ministry? Are we supporting missionaries? Are we sending missionaries on their way in a manner worthy of the gospel, as 3 John says? Again, I think we are. And we should be encouraged by these things, but not comfortable about these things. We shouldn't be coasting through these things. We shouldn't be content with whatever grace the Lord has given us and whatever blessings we've shared. So let's be busy about the care and concern of the church, which here in Acts 21 is actually also showed in this next bit, the prophetic word. We could call this, secondly, the reality and limits of prophecy. Prophecy is a word that isn't in our passage, but it's what's happening in verse 4 when Paul was entire, and some there, through the Spirit, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then later in Caesarea, at the house of Philip, Agabus comes down from Judea, and coming to us, verse 11 he took up Paul's belt and bound his own feet in hands in the tradition of the old prophets who would sometimes demonstrate or, or act out the prophecy that they would then speak. So Agabus acts it out and then speaks it. Thus as the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, that's Paul, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And then Luke tells us, verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now these prophecies in verse 4 and verse 11 both confirm and somewhat contradict what Paul has already said about his future, what he's already discerned by the Spirit. Acts 20, verse 23, I read it already. Paul said, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me in Jerusalem. So what's happening in Tyre, what's said by Agabus and the others in, in Caesarea has already been on Paul's mind through the Spirit. And yet, them insisting that he not go to Jerusalem contradicts. It goes against what Paul has already said and apparently discerned before. Verse 22 of Acts 20, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. And then he says, and I know the Holy Spirit tells me, trouble 
up ahead. Now, how do we reconcile this? The Spirit is said to speak through Paul, and the Holy Spirit is said to speak through some prophet in verse 4 of chapter 21, and through Agabus in, in verse 11. Should Paul go to Jerusalem or not? Paul says yes, his friends say no. Before we can understand how this can both be said, and how this needs to get reconciled, we need to reckon with what this is, this thing of prophecy. So let me lay out before you what I believe Scripture teaches about this category called prophecy. And by the way, if you end up believing something other than what I'm about to say, that's fine. We can just continue doing church together just as well, pretty much, I think. But rather than beat around the bush or be vague, let's just dig in. I'll tell you what I think the Scriptures say. I think there are different categories of prophecy in the Bible, different kinds of prophecy in the Bible. There are Old Testament prophets who spoke prophecies that essentially became Scripture. Therefore, they spoke infallibly. They spoke without error. They were inspired to speak. Sometimes God just said, here's what I want you to say. Say it. Even in the New Testament, 1 Peter and Revelation can talk about Scripture being prophecy. Revelation speaks of itself as being one big prophecy. So again, Scripture is prophecy. That's a category. Prophecy in Acts 2 can be publicly speaking praise miraculously in a foreign language. That's one version of it. And it also can be elsewhere a non-scripturated, divinely given word of insight. A word of knowledge, it's called in 1 Corinthians. A prophet in the New Testament, then, isn't usually just a, a preacher. It isn't just a scripture writer. A prophet in the New Testament is one who occasionally gets a timely insight from God. Here are some examples. Acts 11:28, where we first read of Agabus, the same guy in our passage. There in Acts 11, he spoke of a prophecy of a coming famine, which prepared God's people to get ready for the famine. Acts 13, there prophets in the Antioch church spoke for the Holy Spirit. Set apart for me, Paul, in Barnabas to the work I have for them. So their commission was Holy Spirit given, spoken by a prophet. Or another example in the book of Acts, though the word prophet or prophecy isn't used, but that's what's happening in Acts chapter 5. When Peter miraculously discerns that Ananias and Sapphira have lied about how much money they gave to the church. Peter didn't receive that information via gossip or confession or some discovered receipts or a financial log. It was special supernatural insight. Then you have to factor in verses like 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Or 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let the prophets speak and let others weigh 
what is said. So based on verses like this, apparently there is a category of New Testament prophecy which can be mistaken, which could be misguided, which needs testing. Apparently there's a category of New Testament prophecy which isn't the same as Old Testament prophets, which would be stoned for getting it wrong. Apparently there's a category of New Testament prophecy which isn't just New Testament scripture. And then there's this. There's the possibility with New Testament prophecy that the insight could be right and the application of it could be wrong. It is possible to be accurate about the word from the Lord and miss the application. Accuracy, application, or as John Stott put it, in this case the prediction was right, but their prohibition was wrong. I think that's what's going on in Acts 21. Paul was going to suffer in Jerusalem. Everyone agreed upon that. But it didn't necessarily mean that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem. In fact, Paul had special insight that he should go to Jerusalem. It's sort of this juxtaposition, just as Agabus said, you go to Jerusalem and you're going to be bound there. Paul had earlier said, I've been bound by the Holy Spirit to go. Constrained is what the ESV has, but it's bound. He, he's bound to go to, the whole, to, to Jerusalem, even if he'll be bound there. That's the reality of prophecy. It's real. You might think that's weird if you're not a Christian. Well, we got more weird than that. That's really nothing compared to the rest of the stuff in the Bible. So we're just quite used to this thing that our God can pretty much do whatever he wants. This is absolutely no problem for him. But there are limitations to this in his plan. There are limitations to prophecy. We have to reckon with the fact that this is not the normal way that God guides. It's not the normal way that people are to make decisions. More often in the Bible, Paul says, I thought it necessary to send Epaphras to you. Or it seemed good uh, to us to, to go to Macedonia. But we can be encouraged that God can guide supernaturally whenever he wants to and whenever he thinks he needs to. We can be encouraged by that. Whenever, whenever we actually do need a supernatural insight from God, he is able to give it and to give it to any of us. It's sovereignly displayed and delivered. We shouldn't expect then that he'll always give supernatural insight. It's up to him. It's not that common even in the book of Acts. And it probably was an intensified period where that kind of stuff was happening. Not that it can happen today, but be careful of expecting it let alone demanding it. And even when we do believe that God may be revealing something to us in this special supernatural way, we should be humble enough to seek others out and test it together. And further, we should realize that we might not only misunderstand it, not really hear it, but we might hear it right, but then misapply it. Here is a chapter in our Bibles where everyone is hearing from God and they don't agree what to do about it. How's that? 
Paul responds, verse 13, what are you doing? You're weeping and breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now this has the fingerprints of Jesus all over it. Whether Paul deliberately intends to walk the steps of Jesus to Jerusalem, or Luke is just trying to make us think of it, it's at least the latter. Luke wants us to think that this all sounds very familiar to us if we read volume one. In volume one of Luke's gospel, Jesus predicted his suffering in Jerusalem three times. At this point in the book of Acts, Paul has predicted his suffering in Jerusalem now three times. Remember, Peter tried to talk Jesus out of going into Jerusalem because of the trouble that awaited, but Jesus was resolute in going. And we see this week, Paul's friends are trying to talk him out of going into Jerusalem because of the trouble that awaits and he is resolute in going. Now, there are all kinds of differences between Paul and Jesus in their treks into Jerusalem. And Jesus was going to die for sins upon a cross. Paul won't be crucified. He won't be crucified in Jerusalem. He won't die for sins. There's only one Savior. And that Savior did a one and done, you could say. And that doesn't need to be repeated by anyone. Paul is, Paul is no co-redeemer with Jesus. But, but, in Jerusalem, we read it this morning, Paul will be maligned, mistreated. He'll, he'll be senselessly rejected by his own people. And he went into Jerusalem deliberately, knowing it was coming. And he went there not for his own glory and not to conquer, but he went for the church and for God's glory and to represent Christ. It borders on blasphemy, I know, but is it not true that Paul, in a sense here, is laying his life down for the church? Luke wants us to think this is a man who is walking in the steps of Jesus in a remarkable way. Jesus said, follow me, take up your cross and follow me. He said, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And none of that's figurative for Paul right now. He's willing to lay his life down in the footsteps of Jesus. Now, you might not. You might not ever face severe persecution. You might not ever be called to Jerusalem, whatever that means. You might not know that one day you're taking steps towards trouble or even your death. Paul did. Paul was certain. He was certain about what God wanted him to do and where he wanted him to go. And hence, he was willing to stick to that plan even when dear friends were trying to deter him and even when the path was inevitably unsafe. You might not have any bit of certainty about your future right now. You, you might have a big decision right in front of you right now and you're entirely frustrated by the fork in the road. You would love for, for God to give an arrow or a red light or a green light, some sort of sign, some sort of direction. He may give it. He may not. But don't forget that you have his word. You have his word. 
His word doesn't tell you what job to take, but it tells you in multiple places what it's like to work and what it's like to work to God's glory, what it's like to serve others, to love our neighbor in our work. The Bible doesn't tell you what city in which to live, but it teaches you how to live in a city. Even more than that, it tells you how to be a city. Where else can you get that? The Bible doesn't tell you what girl to marry, but it tells you how to be a husband once you get one. And it tells you even more than that, what marriage is meant for, what it points to, what God is doing with marriage. He's actually pointing to a relationship with him. Oh, the Bible. I mean, the Bible has some answers. Let's not forget. Let's not worry about tomorrow's plans so much that we forget the Bible tells us how to live. Whatever is ahead of us, whatever is unknown, we can say in faith, in confidence, like verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Just like Jesus taught us to pray from the garden. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Well, thirdly, there's the unity and flexibility of the gospel. By the way, I know I said we have four points. We'll get to the fourth, but just barely. Uh, not because I've planned this poorly, but because that fourth point really is like a, a link in a chain that moves us on to the next passage, which we'll see next week. But thirdly, the unity and flexibility of the gospel is in verses 17 to 26. That's what's happening at the end of this chapter, or sorry, this paragraph. There's tension at first, there's dilemma, there's a tough decision, but in the end, it highlights the unity and flexibility of the gospel. It starts with Paul showing up in Jerusalem and meeting with the church leadership, sharing with them all that God had done among the Gentiles, and they responded by glorifying God. And then it gets a little awkward. James explains to Paul that some Jerusalem Christians, some Jewish Christians, were apparently apprehensive about Paul in his ministry. You see, these are people who, though are Christians, they are, as it says in verse 20, zealous for the law. They still obey the food laws of the Old Testament. They, they still follow the Jewish calendar. They still do all that temple stuff. And these kinds of people have heard that Paul is butchering all of that as he travels about. Butchering it all, not just for the Gentiles who don't have to do it, but for the, for the Jews who may want to do it. They've heard that Paul prohibits Christian Jews from their Jewishness, from circumcising their kids and following other parts of the law. The question here is not over the gospel. There's agreement there, even among these zealous for the law Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. They, they believe the biblical gospel. The question is not over what is required for Gentiles to become Christians. 
That got settled in Jerusalem some years back in Acts 15. In fact, the decision of the Jerusalem councils referenced right there in Acts 21, verse 25, right? It's, it's not that the Gentile Christians need to become Jewish in order to become Christian. They come in straight through Jesus, by faith only, by grace alone. It's only expected that once they're Christians, they part with their old pagan lifestyle of adultery and idolatry. The question, though, is whether Paul prohibits Jews from living as Jews. You have to understand that circumcision and food laws in the Jewish calendar were religious things, but not just religious things. They were national, and they were ethnic as well. I know it's hard for us to distinguish those categories, and it's hard for any non-Jews to appreciate the dynamics at play, especially in the first century. But we have to say that theologically, there can be a category of a Jewish Christian who isn't trusting in his Jewishness anymore, who isn't trusting in his circumcision, whose, whose diet may follow Mosaic law, but not in order to keep himself morally pure, and yet still chooses to keep certain Jewish traditions for other reasons. We have to say there's nothing wrong with that. We have to say there's nothing wrong, for instance, with, with a Christian Jew taking on a Nazarite vow. Paul may have done that very thing in Acts 18, or at least some kind of Jewish tradition vow. So no, Paul doesn't prohibit Christian Jews from doing anything and everything Jewish. That's a rumor. And nevertheless, rumors sometimes stick. That's the reputation he has. So what must be done? Operating on the principle that actions speak louder than words, James proposes that Paul involve himself in completing a Nazarite vow of four men. A Nazarite vow was found in number six, if you want to, for some reason, go study that. But a Nazarite vow would be one month of no alcohol, no grapes, and no cutting of hair. At the end of the month, your hair is cut and a sacrifice is made as an expression of thanks to God. James doesn't ask Paul to make a Nazarite vow himself, but he does ask Paul to pay for the rather expensive haircuts of these four men. And for him to do that, he's going to need to make purification for himself at the temple. These are no ordinary haircuts where you go to Jim's barber and then he gives you a bag of hair and then you take it to the temple. This is a temple haircut. Costs some serious dough. And for it to be a temple thing, and with Paul having been away from temple for years, and in Gentile lands, no less, he's going to have to make purification even if he no longer believes that that's purification. The hope is that it clears up the misconception that Paul is anti-everything Jewishness. On the other hand, we should feel tension here. We know Paul's theology from the epistles. We, we, know, we know he believes 
that there was an old priesthood and then there's a new true priesthood in Christ. We know that Paul believes that the true temple now is not made with human hands, but is made up of people in which God dwells within all those who are in Christ. We know Paul doesn't any longer have a category for ritual impurity whereby someone gets tainted because they've been around certain people or certain foods or been in certain places. So feel the tension and know that this may not have been a quick and easy decision for Paul. And yet, nevertheless, for the sake of unity, he bears with the weakness of these Jewish Christians who are still zealous for the old law, and he goes to the temple, he purifies himself, and he pays for four Nazarite haircuts. The theology and strategy for this is captured in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul says to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I think that's what Paul's doing in Acts 21, even if it pushes the boundaries of his comfort. And maybe is something we wouldn't see ourselves doing. Now, by the way, let me just pause here and say that if you're not a Christian, I've been talking about the gospel, the good news. I've been talking about here where Paul says he hopes that some might be saved. Do you know what these things mean? I can't go on without you knowing and making sure that you know. You see, the Bible teaches that we're all sinners. We've gone astray and we're in big trouble with God because we've rebelled against him. But God in his mercy sent his son, who is also God, who took on flesh, lived righteously, and died on the cross sacrificially. That means in our place. That means for our sin. It means he took the payment. He was raised on the third day, and he now offers forgiveness on account of his cross to any who will simply believe it, to any who will simply ask for it and receive it. If you'll repent from your sins and cling to Christ, he will give you his mercy in total forever, unchanging, undeserved. So do you believe it? I pray you do. I pray you wouldn't miss that most important thing of what Paul's living for, of of what Jesus came to do of what Christians represent to the world. We, we do want to represent him to the world and communicate the gospel, that we might win some, that, that some might be saved, as Paul says. Now, the gospel for Paul is of utmost importance, even more than Unity. Unity doesn't trump gospel. If gospel is threatened, or if it could be misconstrued, then Paul will not go along with any kind of funky Jewishness. If 
I can put it that way. Remember when some around Titus said that he needed to be circumcised in order to follow Christ. And Paul said, no way. On the other hand, if it's not an issue of gospel fidelity and unity is the thing that's being threatened, if it's not a gospel issue that Paul's willing apparently to accommodate, to stretch, there is unity and flexibility in the gospel. There's unity in the gospel, but not uniformity. There are commandments in Scripture that are clear, and yet there's application of those commandments that isn't quite clear, and we won't all agree on how to apply them. Imagine I have a non-Christian Jewish friend who follows the food laws of what we call the Old Testament. And he invites me over to dinner for a, a meal at his house. Would it be wise for me to pack a Ziploc of bacon to nibble on it during dinner because I know he's not going to have any? Well, no. Can I, theologically speaking, can I partake of bacon anywhere, everywhere? Yes. And I partake of bacon far too much. <laughs> but my freedom isn't always what is most important. I don't need to needlessly offend. I don't need to be rude to make a point. We can think of this in terms of those outside the church or inside the church. In what ways can you pursue the unity that's in the gospel with flexibility around the gospel. Perhaps music style is a way that this happens in your life. Perhaps you personally wouldn't prefer the music style that we have here at Desert Springs, but you're here for other reasons. Well done. Thank you. That's great. Maybe you would prefer a preacher who wore a tie or a suit or just not jeans. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks for that not being a deal breaker for you. Continue in that. Or think of other ways in which you might show the unity of the gospel with flexibility around the gospel. Now, fourthly, there's the certainty and surprises of suffering. As I said... We'll come back to this paragraph next week, verses 27 to 36. Uh, so many of the scenes in the last one-fourth of the book of Acts loop together like a chain, and so probably multiple times we will do this in the rest of our study, where we cover something barely in one week and then come back to it more fully the next. Here is the certainty and surprises of suffering. That's what Paul finds not long after being in Jerusalem. False accusations arose against him. Some see Paul with a guy named Trophimus, a Gentile, and they assume wrongly that Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple, which would be a big deal. Gentiles were allowed in the outer courts, but not the temple proper. And there were signs at the threshold of the temple proper warning Gentiles that entering 
uh, could mean death. And the Romans, by the way, supported the, the, the decision of the Jews to execute those who transgressed that threshold as Gentiles. The accusation isn't correct, but it works. The whole city is whipped up into a frenzy against Paul. I mean, just look down in your Bibles at verses 30 to 36 again and see the the chaos, the senselessness. Some shouting one thing, some another. They're beating Paul. They want to kill Paul. And they would have killed Paul that day if it wasn't for the Romans stepping in. There's the certainty and surprise of suffering. The certainty is that this was promised. Paul was bound in Jerusalem. Paul suffered in Jerusalem. It was foretold from the day of his conversion where Jesus said, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name until these more recent prophecies that Jerusalem is going to mean trouble and imprisonment and, and beatings. And it was. But God had led him there. The prophecies proved that to be true. It wasn't Paul's mistake. It wasn't his misstep. It wasn't his pride that got in the way. It's not that he thought he could outwit people in Jerusalem. God was in control. Paul was led there by the Lord. His suffering was certain. But it was also surprising in that it's senseless. It's mysterious. It starts with a false accusation that isn't even about Jesus. People are whipped into a frenzy over nothing. They don't even know why they're there. They don't even know why they're beating him. And you might wonder, what's the point? What good will come out of this? What if he dies there in Jerusalem, not for Christ, but for a rumor that he brought a Gentile into the temple? And we'll see next week what the good is. But this week we say, well, this is surprising. This suffering doesn't seem to make sense. It didn't seem like this is the way it was going to go. And once again, we say, none of us are the Apostle Paul. Many of us will never be missionaries. Many of us will never be persecuted for the faith with the threat of death. But the certainty and surprise of suffering is something that every Christian knows. Paul taught in Acts 14, it is by many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of heaven. That was part of his Discipleship 101 package when people got saved. He told Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not all the same way, not quite to the same extent, no. But they will. They'll know suffering. We will know suffering because we follow a suffering servant. We have a Savior who went to the cross He said, take up your cross. He said, follow me. He said, lay down your life. He said, lose your life. And so, Christians can do hard things when they know the Lord's calling them to do it. They don't have to shirk it. They don't have to flee. They don't have to somehow get out of it and save face. 
There's a certainty to our suffering, even while it'll come to us in different forms. And so don't be surprised, but don't be surprised that you're surprised. Don't be surprised that you ask yourself, really, this? I didn't think we'd be here. I didn't think we'd be dealing with this. I didn't think I'd ever have to face that. Don't be surprised by being surprised. But we know the Lord's with us. We know what's on the other side. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's why he could go into Jerusalem with his chin up and ready for anything. The Lord was with him. The Lord was on the other side. The Lord is good. The Lord's in control. Let the will of the Lord be done. And it was. And it will be. Let's pray for his help to believe that. Oh, Lord, we thank you that Luke wrote this, that we might have certainty about what we've heard about Jesus in the church. We pray for greater certainty, more confidence about your glorious plan, about your unshakable purposes, about your unshakable purposes for us, little old us. You're so kind and near. We thank you, Lord, that you protect. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you taught that not one of our hairs will fall to the ground apart from our Father's will. And so we commit not just our hairs, not just our lives, not just our future, but our souls. We commit to you our eternity and everything because Christ is ours. And we pray this morning for those who are with us who can't yet quite say that Christ is theirs. Perhaps even in the singing of this next song where the rest of us confess that Christ is ours, they would begin to speak a confession to you that you, Lord Jesus, are indeed theirs savingly. Give faith, we pray. Grant salvation for your namesake. Amen.